Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. It's the podcast from Share Our Strength. We share the inspirational stories of individuals who set their sights on a problem and use their strengths to create solutions. We'll be right back after this. America is still not the land of equality promised at its birth, but we're working on it. To do this work, we need to consider how services that support our society, services like education, healthcare, and housing, we need to consider how they were designed and who they were designed for. Over the next month, Add Passion and Stir talks to black leaders from media and restaurants to schools about how they're reimagining their industries to make sure that everyone feels a sense of belonging. Today, our guest is Sharif Almeki, the founder and CEO of the Center for Black Educator Development. The center's goal is to revolutionize education by dramatically increasing the number of black educators. Sharif, welcome. I'm thrilled to have you with us. Well, thank you so much for, for having me and thanks for your, for your work. Uh, Sharif, I know you were, you, you've been in education a long time. I know you were a principal of, a, of an amazing school before you founded the Center for Black Educator Development. I would love to just hear a little bit about uh, your path, where it all started, where the passion for education came from and the passion for uh, helping to develop educators that could make a difference in our society. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is my 29th year in, in education, and 26 of those years was uh, in schools, uh, all schools in West and Southwest Philadelphia. I would say that my passion for education um, wasn't, didn't start off like that, you know, um, not that I was, you know, dispassionate about it, it was just not how I saw my, uh, my life mission. Uh, what I was passionate about was activism and social and racial justice. Uh, and a Dr. Martin Ryder, a, a veteran uh, black educator in the school district of Philadelphia, upon meeting him, uh, shared that, you know, the most, uh, the purest form of activism was teaching black children well. And that really got my attention. And he was leading an effort uh, between Concerned Black Men, a national nonprofit, Cheney University, the first HBCU and the school district of philadelphia to recruit black men uh and when i was told about it you know and i went and i met dr martin Ryder, uh it was really compelling that you know what uh, i wanted to uh, use my activism um, my love for community and my uh you know love for for uh children and and justice and and really dive into being a classroom teacher um and later uh became a principal over a course of 16 years and say a little bit more about how you intersected with dr martin Ryder and tell us a little bit about more him i mean that, that, that what you quoted that the purest form of activism is teaching black children well that's such a simple but profound statement i could see how that would change the course of your life uh, what was he like and what was he doing when you met him what I remember uh, about him was he was he was really um, he was engaging. He was a veteran. He was able to like really talk to us about the need, the importance, things I just hadn't sat down and really thought about deeply. You know, um, the idea of having black men teach, um, you know, it it was like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But it was not something I had even thought about beforehand. Um, before entering the meeting, before meeting with Dr. Uh, Ryder. But what I did, what he really pushed me to reflect on 
uh, through these conversations was my own experience as a child. And my favorite teacher, what happened to be a black man, um, you know, from my elementary school, he became my, you know, one of my lifelong coaches and mentors and supporters. And so, you know, started thinking about that. Uh, something else Dr. Ryder did with us was he kind of did this, you know, this uh, kind of connecting the dots. And what he showed was if you teach for X amount of years, here's your influence. And so th this is where he was talking about the activism. He's like, oh, you'll have if you're in elementary school, you might have 25, 30 students. If you're in middle or high school and they rotate, you might have 100 to 125, 130 students. And if you do right by them, if you're teaching um, with, you know, outcomes in mind, with student-centered and uh, their safety, their intellectual, cultural, emotionally, physical safety, all of that is a part of your work, then you're going to not only support them and influence them, but you're going to influence and support their orbit, right? And that you'll be able to engage with their families because they're like, oh, yes, I can trust you. Like, I see my child developing and growing, and that's under your mentorship. Their peers, who you may not even teach, they're going to come with them to your after school program. They're going to come with you. They're going to gravitate towards your work because you're standing for something and you're treating their friend or their child or their relative with justice in mind. And so this idea that educational justice and racial justice were connected and could not be separated. Um, these were all the things that Dr. Martin Ryder talked to us about during the several orientation sessions that uh, that occurred. And that really just you know, I I fell in love with this idea of using activism to teach, to not just teaching, but leading a classroom in a really, uh, you know, just had a deep, profound impact for with me on me that has now lasted, spanned, you know, 30 years. I still draw on uh, the ideas and, and the conversation that Dr. Martin Ryder um, and his team uh, shared with us. Let's go back and uh, have you described for for me and for our listeners, um, a little bit more about the problem that needs to be solved. What's the snapshot of the problem when it comes to the lack of teacher diversity and the, and the consequences of that for, for our kids? Yeah. So I would say in a snapshot, what would you have across the country? 80% of the teachers uh, identify as white in places like Pennsylvania, uh, Minnesota, and elsewhere. That can be up to 96% of the teachers are white. Half of the school districts, which are 500 uh, school districts across Pennsylvania, don't have a single teacher of color in them. That, that's remarkable, Sharif. I just have to interrupt because that just kind of blows me away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So wow. when, you, when you think about like what that means, um, and then when you look at student outcomes, and then when you look at just the, the short-term impact of same-race teachers, you know, what does it mean for a Black child to have a Black teacher? For a long time, we've known you know, a lot of times people, you know, there's more there are more people talking about this now, which is fantastic. But we should not lose sight of the fact that people like Caroline LeCount back in the 1800s and she's uh, she was in Philadelphia back in the 1800s was talking about more black educators for black students. So this has been an issue that has, uh, you know, continuously uh, been um, been an issue in 1967 when. Black high school students in Philadelphia walked out of school. They had a couple of demands. Some of the demands were still uh, demanding today. And one of them was more black teachers. One of them was a black curriculum. One of them was to be able to wear ethnic uh, you know, uh, clothing and wear what they want to wear. Um, 
people are still demanding those those things. So we see that it is a continuation of a struggle. We feel like we are, you know, just are lifting and running with the baton that our ancestors provided. They're part of their struggle that they were working for, recognizing that, you know, uh, the 1954 Brown versus Board uh, landmark case that is often celebrated without looking at the full picture. The full picture means that tens of thousands of black educators were fired or demoted uh, because of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. Black schools were shut down. Um, they, it's not looked at uh, where the plaintiffs, they say like, no, the black teachers that taught us were amazing, but yet they could not find work in the white schools that the students were now going to as this integration because it wasn't really integration. It wasn't a two-way street. It was a one-way street, close black schools down, fire black teachers and demote black principals. Um, and then some of you will allow to come teach, but you won't have you know, leadership, you won't have assignments, you won't have input um, into policies uh, to even welcome these new black students. And so all of those things, um, so we just see that the country as a whole, and this was across the deep South, but it was also in places like Boston um, where integration uh, really took the form of not being welcoming, but saying, this is our space and we'll give you a corner to be in. Or you can be in our school, but you will not have access to our AP courses. Or you could be in our school, or but you're going to have a disproportionate amount of the uh, you know, punitive measures and exclusionary practices. Uh, you can come to our school, but you will be rele relegated to the, to the basement. And you will be just like uh, being Black in America is often uh, secondhand citizenship, the way that policies and laws are crafted. As a student, you're going to be a second-class student in this space. And so when we look at short-term impacts of, of Black teachers having Black students, what the research has shown over and over and over again, that if a Black child has that Black teacher, they're more likely to have a, a higher sense of belongingness, have a higher positive racial identity, be more likely to, to be exposed to, uh, you know, literature and curriculum and at least supplemental curricula that's not, um, you know, anti-Black, uh, that's more inclusive, uh, less likely to be suspended, expelled, and even referred for disciplinary practices, have more access to rigorous courses, whether it's AP, IB, honors, et cetera, higher attendance, better grades, better test scores. All of that uh, has been, you know, uh, researched and proven over and over and over again. But then people like uh, Dr. Constance Lindsay out of UNC and, and some of her colleagues did a long-term impact study of same-race teachers for Black students. And what they found is that long-term, a child, a Black child who has a single Black teacher in third through fifth grade elementary school can have a, a tremendous impact where they may be more likely, up to 39% less likely to drop out of high school, up to 29% more likely to enroll in college. And so when you put all of that together and you look at the current student outcomes for Black students, this has to be one of the, um, the levers, the important levers um, as a part of an overall. Like we don't want, we don't want you to as a system, not address all the other issues and just say, oh, we're just going to add black teachers to the mix. No, we still need to talk about working conditions. We need to talk about what does macroaggressions from colleagues and supervisors look like. We need to look look at what does teacher prep look like. We need to look at student outcomes overall. You know, don't just add black teachers to the mix and not address the lead, the underfunding, 
the asbestos, the overcrowded uh, classrooms and all that. But having more black teachers, having more brown teachers um, is good for all students, um, including white students and their white colleagues. Where did the Center for Black Educator Development originate? How long did you think about it before you launched it? Uh, what was the what was the spark? Yeah, you know what? And it's so interesting um, because a lot of the the work that I was doing, it was um, in this space in particular, it was like nights and weekends, you know, um, before it, you know, as you said, like, when did you start thinking about it? Um, and I would say originally it was the, the fellowship uh, started, there were some black men who were starting to reach out to me and I was doing this fellowship with the U.S. Department of Education Principal Ambassador Fellowship. Uh, which is now called the School Ambassador Fellowship. And I started to see, you know, that this was a, you know, a national issue. It wasn't just in Philadelphia um, that there was a a dearth of Black educators or that the attrition rates were higher for Black educators or Black educators were saying like, hey, these are hostile environments that people are expecting us to be, um, you know, productive in. And and seeing that and then also uh, responding to uh, local Black men um, in education uh, who were interested in in learning more, getting feedback, building community. And so called a couple of friends to help mentor and support a, a, a group of Black men, just, you know, not because, uh, uh, you know, it was something that was formally asked. It was because it was a need in a community. And we started doing this in over a year from 2014 to 2015. We were just meeting once a month, problem solving together, sharing wins, sharing challenges, trying to problem solve them together, pooling resources and providing, a you know, not only networking opportunities, but a community of, of black men. And eventually uh, the the brothers in the in this organization, which we were calling the Fellowship Black Male Educators for Social Justice, wanted to expand. And so, uh, and Dr. We had a, an event, uh, where a hundred something people came on a, on a cold October, uh, uh, day after school, like a Thursday evening. And our superintendent, Dr. Height was one, one of the people there. And he said like, Hey, what's next? And I said, Oh, we're going back to our group, you know, our small group. And he said, he challenged us. He said, look around, this is something that's needed. Um, I challenge you all to think bigger and broader than, your, you know, kind of insular group of, you know, 17 uh, people, you know, there's a, a larger need um, that a district like ours, Philadelphia, could partner with. And it started making me think about concerned Black men and Dr. Martin Ryder and things like that. Uh, and mind you, all this time, we were, you know, I was still a principal, but was able to raise enough money um, as a team, hire a CEO. And I continued with the, uh, you know, my work at, at Shoemaker, uh, but one of the things that really kept gnawing at me was that it really needed a more comprehensive approach to support um, the lack of parity, um, the needs for Black students to have more Black teachers, the need for everyone to have a more diverse teacher uh, and educator workforce. And at that point, I really started thinking about what would it mean to build a, a rebuild, I should say, a national Black teacher pipeline. And that was really the genesis of, of launching the Center for Black Educator Development. And we have four pillars that we stand on. Uh, one is around policy. What are the policies that support educational justice, which includes uh, particularly uh, diverse teacher workforce, uh, teacher preparation, teacher uh, effectiveness, and then professional learning that all educators, whether they're on the school board or whether they are an apprentice, 
considering teaching that they should uh, have opportunities to to learn and to be coached and to be mentored and have uh, reflection uh, exercises. Uh, pedagogy, like what is the Black pedagogical framework that has always been used but not centered in uh, teacher development programs? superintendent licensure programs, principal certification programs. Like what 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 have black communities always looked at education? Um, how have they always looked at education? How did they think about teaching and learning? Um, and so that and then uh, pipeline. How do we start engaging youth uh, to consider some of the same things that I was considering as a 20 year old? about what is the purest form of activism and what does it mean to work simultaneously for educational, social, and racial justice um, together and how can that come about by leading classrooms and schools. And so it seems like this battle has to be fought on at least two fronts. Uh, the work that you're doing to, uh, to, to attract Black educators, but you also mentioned, and then you just a, a moment ago gave some specific examples. Earlier, you'd mentioned uh, what you described as kind of the hostile environments to be productive in if you're a black teacher. Uh, say a little bit more about what that looks like today, because you know I, I think you know you could some people could listen to you and think, well, yeah, that, that might have been true after Brown versus Board of Education or in Boston fifty years ago, but it sounds like it's still true today in a lot of places. Oh, absolutely. And and we see this early on. Like we have apprenticeships, college students even, who are in teacher prep programs and say that they have to interrupt their professor often and give them feedback about the anti-Black messages that they um, are is in their mindset and manifest in, in, in their coursework and how they're teaching and what they say about, uh, you know, Black communities. I think the, the uh, macroaggressions, and I call them that because they're not micro, um, in many instances, and they're compounded over the course of, you know, 180 plus days during the school year and then multiple years. Um, but many Black teachers talk about the, you know, not being respected as intellectuals, um, being asked to, uh, their sole job should be to police Black children, uh, to be serving as mentors um, and the DEI, diversity, uh, equity and inclusion expert, and so that other people can be absolved from the work of excavating their mindsets, uh, you know, of the uh, racial biases that they may they may harbor, um, that they're getting not having access to uh, certain courses, you know, not being able. Not only are students not in AP courses, many black teachers, veterans, uh, experts in their in their craft, are said like, no, they could never. Uh, you know, think to be given, you know, or to be able to earn or show their medal uh, teaching those type of courses, because those were, they're not looked at in that um, realm. They're still looked at, that people, the racial, being Black in America and being Black in American schools have a lot of similarities. But for some reason, people are naive enough to think that once you enter a school, that your racial bias just disappears because it's, you know, we, we like to have you know, just these warm, fuzzy um, notions about uh, schools and what they, you know, what the black and brown experience doesn't always play into this, uh, you know, the the framing of what schools represent. Um, so, yeah, I think part of the part of it is even twofold. Not only are black teachers thinking about 
their experiences in these environments that may have, uh, you know, uh, racial biases baked in. They are also thinking about the students that are maybe living these policies that they don't agree with, and they're and they're seeing that, and so they're trying to protect their own psyche, their own well-being. They're trying to protect children, but then they're also being triggered by some of the experiences that they're having now that reminds them of the, of the experiences they had in those very same seats as students. So it's a very complex, compounded uh, experience of black educators entering schools in the first place and what that means and what that ecosystem means. And if you have someone that's just willfully ignorant and oblivious of what their uh, their comments, their policies, their uh, their racial biases and how they manifest is really important. It's not just who's leading the classrooms, right? It's also who's preparing them. And so one of the things our professional learning team, uh, you know, they do workshops for, you know, for school districts around the country. And one of the the uh, things that they help people wrestle with is their own identity. Um, and then also microaggressions, not but not only identifying, because we don't just want to identify, oh, yeah, there are a lot of microaggressions, you know, check yourself or think about that or, you know, but it's also like, what do you do when you encounter microaggressions from a colleague? What do you do as a white person when you witness microaggressions, you know, um, and like, what does that mean to engage in a community of learners and have collective accountability as far as like how everyone um, is working together? Um, two resources I would just add for your audience is we recently uh, worked with Teach Plus and published a report um, t- entitled To Be Who We Are. Uh, which was from uh, over 100 Black teachers around the country being being uh, participating in the, in this research study and sharing what they believe uh, can support re- teacher retention. And so this is directly from their lived experiences, their live their professional experiences, and given feedback. Um, and a sister document resource uh, is something that we've uh, supported with the Pennsylvania Educator Diversity Consortium is a teacher retention toolkit that we crafted not for individual principals, but for leadership teams, because we believe if this is going to be effective, it can't just be a singular person um, that wants this to happen. It has to be a community of leaders. So the leadership team diving in to really craft in the the ecosystem, as you uh, rightly described it, is just. And this is how educational, racial, and social justice can come together to support teacher retention. So Sharif, how, how do you measure success for the center? I assume there's some things you can count, like I was saying a moment ago, in terms of increased uh, diversity in the teacher force. What, what's success going to look like for you in the center long term? Yeah, so uh, one is that we're able to, to build this national black teacher pipeline that spans across at least 10 cities. Uh, that has a comprehensive effort to engage high school students, college students, um, as well as our staff uh, to have this intergenerational model um, of black teachers in the pipeline. You know, our goal is to have, you know, 20,000 teachers in the pipeline at some level, whether they're a ninth grader in high school, whether they're a senior in college, or whether they're in their first four years of teaching. So for us, the black teacher pipeline is a 12-year process. Uh, with deep, robust supports, whether it's a fellowship that we have in a partnership with the United Negro College Fund, UNCF, where uh, Black high school students who have gone through our program are able to apply to this fellowship, 
where they get $40,000 in both last dollar scholarships as well as uh, retention bonuses in their first four years of teaching. It, our success uh, is also measured by the interests. And so how many, uh, what are students' outlook and interest in teaching after they go through our apprenticeship program um, as compared to their pre-assessment pre, uh, of what how they were interested in, in teaching and particularly teaching Black children. Uh, so all of these. And then also uh, success looks like how did they experience as students our teacher prep program, our apprenticeship program, because that will also inform how well we're doing, um, you know, as uh, as leaders in this in this space, as coaches and mentors in this space, um, and ultimately, uh, we believe this was going to impact the outcomes that people like Dr. Constance Lindsay, or uh, you know, Lucy Craft Laney or Caroline LeCount. Um, you know, envisioned. You're creating a lot of homework for me. I've got to, I've got to study these names. They sound really important. Well, feel free to come to our, you know, our website as well as we have a partnership with Philly Seventh Ward where they started a uh, Black Educator Hall of Fame, um, you know, uh, Outlook uh, or, you know, blog series that just gives a little bit of input. Because a lot of times teacher preps, they talk about Horace Mann, they talk about John Dewey, they talk about Piaget, a lot of European or white educational theorists, white behavior theorists, white child psychologists, and totally removed and ignored and um, unknown in these, uh, you know, educator prep spaces are people like Dr. Carter G. Woodson, uh, Nanny Helen Burroughs, Mary McLeod Bethune, and what their pedagogical frameworks uh, were that they operated. And also you can look at weneedblackteachers.com, which is our high school's uh, our high school students lifted their voices and said, hey, we want to campaign because we are saying we want more black teachers. And so we need more black. Te- we need black teachers dot uh, com is uh, captures some of their their voices and experiences and spaces. And we also invite people to participate. Great resources you've given us. Um, and the Center for uh, Black Educator Development, if you Google that, you get right to right to your website. Yep. www.centerblacked.org. Got it. Uh, so two last things I want to cover. Um, and I'm really interested in your take on my, you know, my colleague, Robert Simmons said you would be a great person to talk to. And Robert's usually right. So I'm so glad he, he suggested this. Um, but, but you know, one thing is it feels like the next, one of the next emerging political battlegrounds is going to be over parents of kids in school. When you think about uh, the degree to which parents and, and schools are becoming politicized, what, what I guess what advice do you have? I mean, I see um, some upside in terms of parents really being passionately engaged in their kids' education. That can be a plus, but to the degree that, to which it becomes yet another element of polarization in our society, uh, you know, I, I obviously worry about that. Uh, talk a little bit about how, the, the, I guess, the center's perspective on on the role of parents and what all of us, I'm the parent of a, of a high school junior, what should all of us as parents be thinking about in terms of the contribution we make to the, to the school system and to your work? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really important, one, to recognize that education has always been political. Um, you know, it was politics that... Uh, you know, made it illegal for uh, black people to access, um, you know, literacy skills. Uh, it was 
politics that allowed for uh, segregation and Jim Crow, um, as SNCC would call sharecroppers education in Mississippi um, and elsewhere. You know, Malcolm X said everywhere is Mississippi, you know, um, and everywhere. Deep South is everywhere south of the Canadian border. And so we have to recognize that, you know, the politics have always uh, you know, been there. Uh, Dr. Jarvis Gibbons wrote a fantastic book called Fugitive Pedagogy and really sharing about how um, educators have always been policed about what they teach about Black children, uh, the history, um, teaching uh, truthful history has always been uh, frowned upon um, and sometimes very violently in, in many spaces. And so I think we have to recognize that. And as parents, you know, uh, part of the partnership is is one making sure that we are, um, if we are truly saying that we want our students to be prepared for um, you know the future for a a flatter world, so to speak, a more uh, a democracy in itself, then we have to recognize that you know we have some fundamental flaws um, about our educational system, about the curriculum, about you know teaching lies instead of teaching truth is not the way forward. And we have to also recognize there are some parents who are quite comfortable with uh, teaching lies um, and that white supremacy is is inside of curricula. Um, and if that is the polarizing line, then we're going to have to be polarized because um, I, you know there's no there's no compromising about uh, teaching white supremacy or like let's reform. Uh, white supremacist thought. Let's let's just decrease it, you know, to whatever degree. No, we we have to actually reimagine um, and not add amendments to a racial system, not add window dressing to a skyscraper that was built on a foundation of, of racism and anti-blackness. Not you know uh, be satisfied with pruning the branches of a tree that the roots are tearing up the foundation. We have to actually reimagine what does this actually look like, and not just from oh, let's include a couple, you know, a couple of uh, days or statues or holidays or books um, from diverse educators. No, what does true educational and racial justice look like in our curricula, in our framework, in our very foundation? And that takes a very different mindset and approach um, than some of the. Uh, add-ons that people want to do. Even when you see the DEI work, this diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, often it's the framework, like, this is my space and we're going to, you know, we're going to invite you in and we're going to include you in my space. No, it's not. This is the student space and the students um, need a very different type of education. Um, not one that, you know, many of them say, oh, I, I, uh, I went through the education and I'm fine. Like, no, you're not fine. That's why you're you know, screaming um, about teaching truth in these school board meetings. You're, you're actually not fine. The politics has been there from the very beginning, is what you're saying. Absolutely. Sharif, last question. Uh, you, you said you challenge yourself to, you know, to answer the question, what is the purest form of activism? And your answer was, it was teaching black children well. Do you feel that is, uh, having done this now for some time, having created the center, um, is that more true than it was when you started? Is it less true? Have you changed your view of it at all? What is the purest form of activism? Yeah, you know, I still think uh, the purest form of activism is teaching black children well, um, particularly when you're looking at the student outcomes and which students um, in this country have historically, as well as currently, um, you know, uh, 
really not when they succeed. It's often in spite of their educational experiences in school, right? Like often they have to draw on, um, you know, outside forces to to reach their full potential, um, which, you know, like I believe in holistic education. I believe in that all learning doesn't happen in, uh, you know, in formalized settings in schools, that plenty of learning happens out in out of school time. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. Uh, but they also shouldn't have to mitigate you know, so much oppression that is experienced in our institutions of, you know, uh, mislearning, you know, um, while there's so many assumptions that students, you know, particularly black and brown and poor students come to school broken and the school's job is to make them whole. And, you know, quite often it's the opposite. You know, these children leave school, leave home, leave their communities, leave their families, curious, excited, whole. Um, it's 13 years in in educational systems where they find themselves broken, and and use disengagement as a self preservation tool. And so, what we have to really do is reframe that whole experience. And we can do that by starting with what are their aspirations, uh, what are the family's aspirations, what are they saying the needs are um, from their perspective. And so, for me, that is what the activism is about because it includes them. They are active in framing what their learning experience should look like. And so for me, that that remains true. Um, and I think that every organization in school, adjacent to school, should have a couple of uh, non-negotiables, like some some priorities that don't change, you know? And I, and I, right, and people are always like, oh, we need to revisit our strategic priorities. Like absolutely do that and make sure that um, student outcomes, student success, student literacy, and, Black teachers, um, brown teachers, like diverse teachers, is always a part of your strategic priorities. Don't like we're not at a place where that should come off the strategic priority. You can add a couple things to that. That should never be removed from any organization that's in schools or adjacent to schools. If not, they may have lost their way. Well, I feel like as important as that answer is, uh, so long as you're so long as you're asking yourself. The question what is the purest form of activism you almost can't go wrong because i feel like that that searching that exploring that determination to find that uh, i think takes you to a good place as long as long as the part of the answer is being informed by the communities that people want to serve because so often they'll ask that and then they'll go do it to um you know communities instead of with communities. And so that's what that's the only nuance that I would what I think is an important nuance um, or wrinkle that I would add to that. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, we've been talking with Sharif Almecki, the founder and CEO of the Center for Black Educator Development. I am so grateful for you taking the time, uh, Sharif. We've learned a lot in this conversation. I hope uh, we can stay connected uh, at Share Our Strength to the work that you're doing. So much of our focus is on school meals and it's for the purpose of ensuring that kids can thrive. And, you know, we always say that three meals a day is not enough to ensure kids will thrive. But uh, if they don't get three meals a day, uh, it, it's almost certain that they're not going to. Um, but, uh, you know, learning uh, what else that ecosystem that we talked about 
uh, needs uh, uh, has been so important and will really inform our thinking going forward. So thanks for joining us. I'm grateful to be here. Listen, you know, your work is very much aligned with, with ours, you know, uh, making sure that students are healthy, mind, body and spirit, um, that they are safe. Uh, and a lot of times people think about safety of children being only like uh, physical attacks. But I look at safety as a more comprehensive, you know, um, intellectual, cultural, emotional, spiritual, as well as physical. And physical is not just, you know, uh, like someone hitting you. Uh, physical safety means that you are going to be fed and nourished. Right. And that is a part of, um, you know, what caring for children um, actually means. So thank you for your work and thanks for having me on. Shout out to Dr. Robert Simmons for introducing us. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Absolutely, I'm grateful to Robert too. Well, on behalf of the entire team uh, at Char Strength, uh, my sister Debbie Shore, who's often uh, on this podcast, Robert Simmons for suggesting this, Kelly Griffin and Joanna Weber, uh, and our producer today, Hunter Sense of District Productive. Thanks so much for listening to Add Passion and Stir. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. You can go to addpassionandstir.com and find all, all of our previous episodes and rate us and rank us and subscribe.